We meet the Holy Spirit two verses into the entire Bible, where he is found hovering over the face of the waters at the time of creation. While the word hovering doesn't sound much like creating, that is what the Holy Spirit is doing here. This truth is found in language studies. Uh, when we look at the root of the Hebrew word for hovering in similar ancient languages, we find it used in reference to birds. This points some scholars to see the earth as one big egg that the Holy Spirit is brooding over while waiting for life to hatch out of it. The Holy Spirit playing a part in creation lines up with Psalm 104.30, which says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. As one scholar notes, the psalmist understands that the original creation and later creations belong to a single continuous process, one that continues even to our day and still involves God's spirit. Job further affirms this statement when he says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. All that being said, the Holy Spirit is a creator. He always has been, and he always will be. Now let's dive more into what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit was ruach. But just like many English words, this word had other possible translations. In some cases, it could be translated breath or wind. But regardless of which translation is most proper in any given verse, we can see similarities in these concepts, right? You can't see wind, but you can see its powerful effects. You can't necessarily see breath, but you know that without it, there's no life. You can't see spirit, but you recognize it as an invisible, tangible life force. Uh, these things may be invisible, but they aren't intangible. And with all this in mind, perhaps it's not that shocking that when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon believers at Pentecost in the New Testament, he manifests as a mighty rushing wind. Just as the Ruah Elohim, the, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the wind of God, hovered over the face of the waters to create life at the beginning of the Old Testament, now the wind of God hovers over the faces of the church at the beginning of the New Testament to create a new humanity. Just as King Saul was turned into another man when he received the Holy Spirit for the anointing and empowerment to reign over Israel, so Christians have now been turned into new people with their own unique anointings and empowerments to serve as the body of Christ. Christians are not quite as human as the rest of humanity. Or perhaps we might say that Christians are more human than the rest of humanity. Or or that we're the kind of humanity God was envisioning we'd become before we fell into sin. However we want to explain it, Christians are a new kind of human. For when we accept Jesus, we accept the resurrection life that is to come. And we can't enter into the resurrection life at the end of all things if we don't have the Holy Spirit, because he's the one who creates the new resurrected humanity. Paul recognized that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, 
and that the Holy Spirit would one day do the same for us. He, he taught us that the Holy Spirit upon us is a seal of God on our lives and a guarantee or down payment of the resurrection life that is to come. The Holy Spirit shows us that our inheritance of resurrection life is ahead of us. But at the same time that the Bible shows us that resurrection life will come later, the Bible also recognizes that resurrection life actually begins right now in the new humanity known as Christians. Yes, we are living in a time where the kingdom of heaven is here, but not yet. We are living in a time where the reign of Jesus is here, but not yet. We are living in a time where our resurrected bodies are here but not yet. In many themes across the theological spectrum, we live in the already, but not yet. But because people, but because we do live in the already right now, uh, the Bible has high expectations of the ways in which Christians could actually live right now if we want it. Yes, our old bodies are still on us at this point in the grand story of God, but the Holy Spirit has begun growing our new resurrected bodies underneath. Christians are the first fruits of the Spirit, and therefore an example to the rest of creation of the resurrection life that lies ahead of them. The seed of resurrection is already in us, and it can grow more and more each day if we allow the Holy Spirit to grow it in us. And as we let resurrection life grow within us in this phase of existence, the fruit of the Holy Spirit will begin to burst out of us. People will see in Christians all the qualities of the Spirit and the resurrected life. They'll see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul knew that sin was still going to be a temptation in this phase of life, but he also knew that as a new creation in Christ, we could, by the power of the Holy Spirit, finally be empowered to ultimately beat sin when it comes our way. As he says in Romans 6, 4-14, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. But we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." In past times, this passage that we just listened to was a complicated passage for me, for I hardly feel dead to sin sometimes. 
As a kid, my experience versus Paul's words would lead me to wonder if I was even a Christian. But perhaps, if we're catching on to Paul's resurrection is already here but not yet mindset, we see his true point. In our baptism, we died like Jesus' human body died. But as we came up out of the waters, we arose with a preview of his resurrected body. And to be a part of the resurrection is to be a part of a sinless world. Therefore, even though our old body can still drive us to sin, we are not slaves to that old body anymore. The new resurrected body has won, and its final form won't sin at all. Therefore, if we choose to live by the resurrected body right now in this life, we can grow to the point where the sin we are theologically dead to becomes dead to us in actuality as well. Theological truth can become actual life. Though surely it will take some time to get to that point. Because growing through the Spirit is growing fruit. And fruit, by definition, definition, that takes time to grow. The mighty Holy Spirit wind of the new creation has made us new. We are not humans in the same sense as all of the other humans in the world are around us. We should, by all means, look different from the rest of the world around us. For the Holy Spirit empowers us to be different. When two men were empowered by the Holy Spirit and began prophesying among Israel, a young man delivered the news to Moses. What was Moses' response? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses responded this way because at the time of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only anointed and empowered select people. But towards the end of the Old Testament, Joel prophesied that Moses' dream would one day become reality when saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Then, in the New Testament, Peter affirmed that Joel's prophecy had reached fruition when he quoted it right after the mighty rushing wind blew across the church at Pentecost. The time for all of God's people to be empowered by the Holy Spirit had finally arrived. This, of course, should speak volumes to us, seeing as how we live in the same spiritual time frame. Joel's prophetic word was not about the end times, as I once thought. Joel's word was about right now. God has already poured his spirit out on us right now. We are living in the most exciting movement of God yet. This is not some boring lull between the early church and the last days. This is the last days. Everything since Jesus' resurrection was the last days in the mind of the New Testament writers. So the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit that was reserved for these last days is here for us now. Once it was for select people before Pentecost, but now it's given to all of God's people indiscriminately. And Jesus shows us how we can live with the Holy Spirit's power upon us because he himself was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because of our Trinitarian beliefs, we often think that Jesus was able to do all the supernatural things he did simply because he was God. That's not what our Bible is communicating to us. For when Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit, 
He began to immediately walk in similar ways that his Holy Spirit-infused ancestors did. If we conclude that Jesus was able to heal people, cast out demons, and raise the dead simply because he was God in flesh, then the rest of our Bible turns into blasphemy. After all, many of the things Jesus did were also done by others in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. Just as Jesus multiplied bread and fish to feed the masses, so did Elijah tell a widow that her jar of flour and jug of oil would not go empty until a set time. Just as Jesus casted out demons and healed people, so he gave his twelve disciples the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. We can even note that as amazing as it was that Jesus raised the dead, he was not the only one to do so. We see Elijah, Peter, and Paul all raise people from the dead. Furthermore, all throughout history, even into modern times, we've reported that same kind of miracle along with many others. So if Jesus did miracles simply because he was God, then we'd have to apply the same ideology to all of these other people. That's blasphemy, for they are not God. Rather than try to devise a whole new theology to understand Jesus' power, it makes a whole lot more sense to simply believe what the Bible is communicating. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and the Holy Spirit's role in his life was to empower him to do the same kinds of things that people had done even throughout the Old Testament. If we understand that Jesus and his followers operate in the power of the Spirit, we won't be super confused when we see people do even greater things than Jesus did, just as Jesus said we would. And who even knows when we're doing something that Jesus didn't, since we don't have all the records of everything he did. When I learned about the power of the Holy Spirit in college, I became very open and zealous for spiritual gifts. Since then, I have seen the gifts at work in close friends and in myself. I've seen people impossibly healed. I've casted out a demon. I've had spiritual dreams. I've had convicting visions that left me in tears. I have watched the Holy Spirit manifest powerfully in the people around me. I've heard beautiful choruses of tongues sang by church members all around me. A Christianity lacking these kinds of testimonies is a Christianity lacking the mission of the church. God grants every one of his followers some kind of spiritual gift with the possibility of anointing us with even more gifts as time goes on. For Paul told us to earnestly desire the higher gifts, which implies that we might receive them as we press in for more. If our churches don't leave space for the spiritual gifts of God to be practiced, we will find ourselves attending a gathering that is not much different than anything the rest of the world could put on. Likewise, we'll de-empower the people of God by taking away the work that God himself has anointed them to do, and put all the pressure on our pastors to do things that they can't do because other people were gifted with those gifts. A church without space for the Holy Spirit has effectively quenched the Spirit. Perhaps that's part of the reason why church gatherings continue to thin out. Lots of people believe in something spiritual, but they're not finding it in our gatherings. But when we make space for spiritual gifts to be practiced, glimpses of resurrection life break through and people change. For it is only the Holy Spirit who can change us in the first place, and, and without Him, we're going to be stuck, and all of our promises will not come to fruition.
We've now seen how the Holy Spirit represents creation, redemption, and empowerment, but we have yet to talk about how He is the presence of God with us now. This sometimes confuses people because they think of God as everywhere. That is, He is omnipresent. Which is absolutely true, by the way. Just as all the other omni words in this series have all been true, this one's true. But just as all the other omni words in this series have needed a bit of tweaking to understand them better, uh, so does omnipresence need just a little bit of tweaking. While God is in all places at all times and has missed nothing that has ever happened, He did have special dwelling places on the earth throughout the Old Testament. It began in Eden, where God's presence was so tangible that He could be sensed and the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Eden was his holy temple at that point in time, and a specific place on the earth where his presence dwelled. Of course, we all know how the story of Eden goes. Adam and Eve choose to disobey God and are therefore expelled from God's sacred dwelling place. They must now go into the rest of the world that was not the special dwelling place of God. From this point on, God's manifest, tangible presence will migrate to a new temple that will take on the form of a mobile tent. Sure, a tent may not seem all that glorious, but could anything human hands ever build compared to Eden, let alone God's heavenly temple? And so, God instructs Moses on how to design this new temple, and then empowers a man named Bezalel with his Holy Spirit to build it. Sometime after it was finished, something interesting happened. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence is clearly there in the tent in the form of glory, something that Mark S. Smith calls the aura or effulgence of divine presence. God has moved from Eden to a new home amidst his people, and though he is omnipresent, the sacred space will continue to be a special place where his glory dwells and he can be found. His presence will dwell within a special room in the tent known as the Holy of Holies, and this sacred area would be behind a curtain, and only the Levites of the uh, tribe, only the tribe of the Levites of Israel would be able to take care of this area. Now, fast forward quite a bit, and the presence of God moves once again, this time to a permanent structure that King Solomon built instead of this mobile tent. After this new glorious temple was created, a worship service was held in which the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the new Holy of Holies. Songs were played by a huge band and sacrifices were made beyond number as the celebration continued. It was then that God's presence invaded this new sacred space, for the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister. But you know, eventually this temple was destroyed and replaced by a second temple that Herod helped build during Jesus' time. Uh, this will be the same temple that Jesus enters into and flips tables in. However, there is no affirmation that God's presence or this divine cloud was ever truly believed to have been in the second temple like it was in the other sacred spaces. We don't have stories evidencing that his glory or presence were ever imparted to this structure. But despite this, when Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Thus, 
symbolically showing us that God's presence has been unleashed from the Holy of Holies. And we know that it was God who did it, because if a human was to tear this heavy veil, if they were even capable of doing so, they would have to pull from bottom and not from the top, but it split from top to bottom. And this happened as soon as Jesus died. And so we see some of the symbolism being communicated. Now all Christians, instead of just the select Levites, are capable of accessing the presence of God whenever we want. For the temple is no longer a building, but a person. It's Jesus, really. For as Jesus once said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And we see in Gospel of John that Jesus says, uh, the Gospel says that Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. God dwells in Jesus, the Son of God who is empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no more need of sacred space in a building because sacred space is the God-man. And that God-man invites us back to the true presence of God that we once had while in the Garden of Eden. For when Mary Magdalene goes to find his lifeless body in the tomb, she finds the resurrected Jesus and mistakes him for a gardener. It's a callback. This gardener is inviting us back into the garden and therefore into the presence of God, where we find ourselves entering sacred space once again. And since Paul tells us that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us too, we too have access to the presence of God. We are temples of God, both corporately as a church and individually. Yeah, God's presence was once found within the sacred spaces of buildings, but now it's found in our pre-resurrected bodies. Perhaps prophets like Jonah really thought that he could flee from the presence of God if he left God's holy land of Israel, but we know better. God's presence is as close as our very skin. And one day that presence will be even more tangible as we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The fullness of God's presence is coming. But as with most things in this phase of the spiritual timeline, though it's coming, it's also already here. And we find God's presence when we turn to the Holy Spirit.